Everything is lost in the singularity of thought. I just never knew where I was most of the time. I mean, I'm not building a monument to Michael Nesmith with my life. Yeah, well, that could have been your face. Where's That Sound Coming From podcast presents Questions But No Answers Preserving the Musical Legacy of Michael Nesmith This is Episode 1 How Can You Kiss Me? (laughs) It was all just, you know, about me Hello and welcome to Episode 1 of Questions But No Answers I'm your host, Brian Marchese And if you're here, that must mean that you are not completely turned off by episode zero, the introduction and statement of purpose. And uh, I'm glad you could make it. Oh, boy, this is great. I think I'll stay up here the rest of the night. (laughs) Mike, John, and Bill were a self-described folk and roll trio that came together in L.A., despite all being native Texans, at the start of 1965. Mike, the singer, songwriter, and guitarist of this trio, is, of course, the hero of our story, Michael Nesmith. John is bassist John Keeney, later known as John London, whom Mike met in 1963 while both were at San Antonio College. And Bill is drummer Bill Sleeper, another Texan who Mike knew in high school and who answered his old friend's call and relocated to L.A. in early 65 to join Mike and John and complete the trio. So they were the stars of this episode. And although this episode is focused on 1965's How Can You Kiss Me, I think it important, and I hope you agree, interesting, to backtrack to 1963 and hear a bit of what Nez was writing as a brand new singer, player, and writer, and how quickly he evolved during this time. So let's rewind two years to the start of Mike's life as a musician, because right off the bat, we'll learn things that might make later events seem more significant and make more sense. But buckle up because despite only having become a musician at 19 going on 20 years old, young Mike Nesmith made up for lost time by playing gigs, hawking his quickly growing repertoire of original songs, and networking before he hardly knew more than three guitar chords. I have the great pleasure of introducing this time a gentleman who is quite well known here in San Antonio. So actually he needs no more introduction than to say simply, here's Mike. And that was the voice of local DJ Ed Hyman introducing Mike Nesmith's solo set at a club in San Antonio, Texas in the summer of 1963. We'll hear his name again in a few moments. And speaking of names, just like Ed Hyman called him, for the next several episodes, we will likewise refer to our protagonist as Mike. Later on, Michael and or Nez will be used. Inspired by a Hoyt Axton gig that he caught during his short stint in the Air Force, Mike received his first guitar on Christmas 1962, five days before his 20th birthday, and quickly discovered a natural ability to write his own songs, which both gave an outlet for his poetry, as well as teaching himself how songs are written. Enrolled at that point as a drama major at San Antonio College, becoming a musician could also satisfy his wanting to perform in front of people, but in a more personally meaningful way. College quickly became merely a distraction for Mike. 
This was during the period after the first wave of rock and roll had faded, but before the Beatles hit, so folk music was what fledgling musicians and songwriters of a certain age were drawn to in cities all over America. And thus, his first original songs were straight up folk, played on his new acoustic six-string. A natural hustler and networker, within just six or seven months of learning guitar and songwriting, Mike had not only headlined a folk fest held outside a San Antonio shopping center, but had recorded and released his first single, the self-penned Wanderin' backed with Well, 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 and even had one of his songs, called Go Somewhere and Cry, recorded by another artist, Denny Esba, who was sort of the Elvis Presley of San Antonio at the time. Let's spend a little time with these songs first, since they represent the true start of Nesmith's life of creativity. First, we'll listen to a bit of Wanderin', his first single, which was released on the independent vanity label, Highness Records. Now, had Nez co-founded a label called Highness in one of his later stoner periods, we could all chuckle at the wink-wink implications. But this was before all that, and in fact, the name comes from a mashup of the last names Nesmith and Hyman. Ed Hyman being the local DJ that we heard earlier, and a friend and supporter of young Mike. See? Look at that. Six months into his career, and already attracting attention and creating opportunities for himself. So here's a bit of Wanderin', a simple folk song featuring just Mike and his six-string acoustic, with lots of sort of folk cliches about living the lonesome, rambling life, as heard in lots of folk tunes before and since. But listen and see if the tag at the end of the verses remind you of anything Nez wrote a few years later. That's how I earn my living Six strings Cause they're the only friends I know Six strings And a song that burns inside me And where I hang my hat Is where I call it Some highway wandering, but I'm traveling all alone. Wandering, going absolutely nowhere. And where I hang my hat is where I call it home. Yeah, where I hang my hat is where I. So there's 20-year-old Mike Nesmith, his first recording barely six months after becoming a musician and singer-songwriter. And that tag, where I hang my hat is where I call it home, I can't say for sure. And remember, this podcast is called Questions But No Answers, so get used to lots of my theorizing. But I wonder if he subconsciously stored that idea away, and six years later utilized a similar phrase that fulfilled a similar function in what is one of his most beautiful songs. Knowing full well that some of them just don't exist But I am finally alone And where my footsteps down is where it's home That was, of course, The Crippled Lion, 
recorded in the spring of 1968 in Nashville, but not officially released until he re-recorded and rearranged it with the first national band two years later. And you bet that I'll be doing a full episode on that song. But anyway, there's that word home being used as a refrain in both songs, and in each of which the transient singer is describing anything but a permanent address. And here he is in April 1974, introducing his song Silver Moon at the Roundhouse London, and imparting to the audience how the word is defined in the Michael Nesmith lexicon. And um, in this song, home refers to that place in your own consciousness where you are the most comfortable. And while he might not have been aware of the deeper, more personal meaning of that word in 1963, I think a line can be drawn between the spirit of those three sets of lyrics. Wandering, The Crippled Lion, and Silver Moon. See how this podcast works? Connecting dots. But with a big question mark floating above them. And as I mentioned before, not only was he networking with a local DJ, Ed Hyman, who might qualify as one of the first ever Nez heads, but Mike had also attracted the attention of regional pop star Denny Esba, sometimes referred to as the Elvis of San Antonio, who not only recorded Mike's song Go Somewhere and Cry, the A-side of a single released in August 1963 on the local Renner label, but Esba also invited the upstart songwriter to play guitar and whistle up a storm on the song. Let's hear a little bit. Someday she might come back to me But that day I'll probably never see Told her mom she'd left for good I'd follow her if I could Yeah, I guess I'll go somewhere and cry yeah, I'm gonna cry Say, I'm gonna cry Bloody, I'm gonna cry You know I'm gonna cry Gonna have a good cry Ooh, I'm gonna cry Neither of these early releases really got distributed or even heard outside of certain pockets of Texas but they are significant in that they got the Mike Nesmith name in the local papers and led to more folky gig opportunities. Some accounts have Mike playing as far east as Cape Cod around this time. That September, at the start of fall semester at San Antonio College, Mike met and befriended John Keeney, a bass player who was immediately impressed and inspired by the stack of original songs Mike had already written. They began working out these songs as a duo, and thus, the folk duo called Mike and John was born. By December of 1963, they played their first gig at Mama's Pizza Parlor in San Antonio. And pardon me for a moment, but since I'm the guy, after all, who wrote the essay entitled The Curious Parallels in the Lives and Careers of Michael Nesmith and Jerry Garcia for the Where's That Sound Coming From blog back in 2012, the very essay that caught Nez's eye a few years later, and which he posted to his Facebook page, leading to my brief involvement in Video Ranch. I will now point out the curious parallel that the first gig by the Warlocks, soon to become the Grateful Dead, also took place at a pizza parlor. Magoo's Pizza Parlor in Menlo Park, California in May of 1965. Pizza parlors, man, 
where stars were born in the mid-60s, apparently. In Andrew Sandoval's indispensable Monkeys Day-by-Day book, both editions, he notes that as early as this December 1963 pizza parlor gig, Mike had already written a future classic, Different Drum. I'll wait while you mop up your brain, which might have just exploded from that fact. Another song that is mentioned as part of their repertoire at this early stage, and which shows how quickly Mike's songwriting was developing, was one called Pretty Little Princess, which Mike and John recorded, possibly their first recording together, but which was never officially released. However, a nice-sounding recording is readily found on bootlegs and on YouTube, so let's listen to a bit of that. I find it to be easily among the most impressive of his very earliest efforts. It was also Mike's first song to be copyrighted by Frankie Lane's Mellow Art Music after Mike's relocation to L.A., which we've not gotten to yet. But before I go, my dainty little maiden, I will fashion you a sunrise that will prove my love is real even though I'm gone. Fare you well for my kind of love is a special kind of tenderness that one must not hold to know it must stay free and follow an endless highway and in that freedom it will grow though i'm gone and shan't return in the corner of my heart will always burn the tenderness of your caress upon my cheek Fare you well And one last thing, my dainty little maiden To prove my love will never die Is the golden glow of the morning sky I gave to you Fare you well Everything about this song demonstrates some of the ways that Mike was quickly evolving in his first year as a songwriter. From the arpeggios to the rapid-fire lyrics to the minor keys and the verse switching to major and the bridge. And this might be a stretch, but there's something about that no time to breathe vocal phrasing that brings to mind a song of his from almost a decade later. There was an element of majesty in the way the lady said that she was leaving in the morning for the coast. And that goodbye should have brought me pain But I watched her quickly check the reins of emotions Which unloosed with purple bows That's just mere speculation. But we'll do a whole episode on that song, The Upside of Goodbye, once we're in the early 70s. So now we're in 1964, and Mike and John win Headliner of the Year at a campus talent contest, and also get a steady gig at a folk club called The Rebel, where they regularly pack the place. John had a friend named Charlie Rocket, whom Mike immediately rubbed the wrong way with his confidence, which Charlie perceived as arrogance, and his oddball sense of humor, which Charlie perceived as this Nesmith guy simply being a sociopath or just a complete asshole. But they worked things out, became friends, and Mike asked Charlie to be Mike and John's agent. As increased gigging and songwriting and rehearsing, as well as making time for his new girlfriend, Phyllis Barber, had left Mike little time for anything else. Charlie Rocket was the impetus for the big move to California. He and John went first, and after tying up some loose ends, such as marrying Phyllis, 
Mike and his brand new wife arrived in LA in the summer of 64. Penniless and without many prospects, Charlie Rocket knew no one in LA, so he couldn't do much as an agent and so was amicably let go. It was through a stroke of luck that the daughter of Mike and Phyllis's landlord just happened to work for pop crooner from a previous generation, Frankie Lane, who had his hand in several areas of the music industry. Lane was impressed by Mike and John and took them on as clients, paying them a very modest stipend to stay fed and housed. It might have been at this point that Pretty Little Princess was demoed, but I already went over that song, so... Oh, and what became of Charlie Rocket? Well, as he did with his other Texas pals who likewise relocated to L.A. like John London, David Price, David Pearl, and Phyllis's brother Bruce Barber, after finding fame with the monkeys, Mike found all of his homeboys sweet jobs within Monkey World, as stand-ins, roadies, songwriters, or session players. Anyway, besides finding management, not much was happening in L.A. for Mike and John as a performing folk duo in the summer and fall of 1964, so Lane's management sent them on a misguided, unpleasant tour of school auditoriums around Texas for the last couple months of the year. Bummed out by all the work they had to put in for the pointless and seemingly endless tour, Mike and John wanted to explore new sounds. With the Beatles now influencing everything in pop culture and Dylan going electric and abandoning the folk scene that made him a star, Mike and John, with pregnant Phyllis, returned to L.A. at the start of 1965, ready to plug in and rock. While they could have probably found an out-of-work L.A.-based drummer to complete their trio, Mike, once again ever loyal to his Texas roots and eager to create opportunities for his homies, called up a drummer he knew from back home named Bill Sleeper, who heeded the call and resettled in L.A. to be the Bill in Mike and John and Bill, which Mike described in press clippings from the time as a folk and roll group. Of course, the term for the blending of folk and rock became much better known for all eternity as the cooler label folk rock. And I find Mike's not-quite-on-the-mark coining of a new musical genre pretty significant because the way Mike and John and Bill sounded was likewise not quite on the mark. The folk rock sound that was emerging in 1965 and quickly spreading across the U.S. and getting attention in the U.K., was defined by acts like the Birds, the Turtles, and the Mamas and Papas in L.A., the Vegetables and Bo Brummels in San Francisco, and the Love and Spoonful and Simon and Garfunkel in New York. Essentially, these artists, while staying true to their own unique visions, sought to achieve the musical sophistication of the Beatles with the lyrical depth and hip, sometimes cynical, sometimes druggy, lyrics of Bob Dylan. Mike had the perfect instincts in blending folk and rock, but his vision wasn't in sync with the zeitgeist, much like how, despite being one of the pioneers in the blending of country and rock later in the 60s, the sounds he created ended up not being the magic formula that ended up filling ballrooms in the late 60s and arenas in the 70s. We'll for sure discuss all that in later episodes. So, after Bill's arrival in LA, the trio rehearsed and tried to get gigs in the city without much success. In May of 65, they recorded their one and only single in Hollywood with a guy with the barely believable but very Hollywood name of Chance Halliday, who worked under Frankie Lane, producing. Mike and John and Bill released their one and only single in the summer of 65, How Can You Kiss Me, backed with Just a Little Love, on the Omnibus label, a label that seemed to begin and end with this one release. In fact, not just Omnibus, 
but Mike and John and Bill began and ended with this one release, as Bill Sleeper was soon drafted for the Vietnam War. According to the Sandoval book, the few copies that were pressed of this single ended up being sold exclusively through a Texas department store that Frankie Lane was connected with. A cruel twist of fate since Mike was now a Californian and wanted to leave his Texas roots in Texas. So finally, let's listen to this episode's featured song, How Can You Kiss Me? that's a great song, right? Simple, without a bridge or even a chorus. And it's indeed nothing if not a blending of folk and rock. Electric guitar, bass and drums bring the rock. And the two-part harmony, both sung by Mike, and the chord progression bring the folk. In fact, a while back it dawned on me that this song has a similar structure to a traditional folk song that another newly plugged-in band at the time had arranged for rock and roll and recorded their very first recording session 400 miles north of LA 
in the fall of 1965. I am absolutely not supposing that Mike and John and Bill ever interacted with the Grateful Dead, then still known as the Warlocks. I'm just pointing out the similarity in the basic structure and feel of the two songs due to shared folk roots, and how this was the case with young folkies turned rockers all over pockets of the US at this time. There's a certain thrill hearing the musical work of artists before they had any idea that they'd be successful at all. I was recently listening to the newly released Lou Reed demos from 1965 words and music by Lou Reed, and thought about this early Nesmith stuff, how you can hear brilliant seeds of what was to come, as well as flimsy or gimmicky ideas that were wisely discarded. Now here's the part where I want to heap lots of praise on drummer Bill Sleeper. So speaking as a drummer, I love and am fascinated by how Bill Sleeper approached this song, How Can You Kiss Me, and what he's doing here. Despite it being 1965, his style is kind of Jerry Allison, Buddy Holly's drummer, and turns a deaf ear to Ringo Starr, Charlie Watts, or any of the new British invasion drummers. Nor does it bear any resemblance to the big American drummers of the day like Hal Blaine or Dino Dinelli or anything coming out of Motown or Muscle Shoals. Nor is he a not-really-a-drummer-drummer, drummer, learning on the job like the Birds' Michael Clark or Jefferson Airplane's Skip Spence, or the monkeys Mickey Dolans. Maybe it's Sandy Nelson influenced? I'm not sure. Ooh, and there's some Ray Charles what I'd say in there too with the snareless snare. But either way, it's a unique and not easily figured out pattern that he's doing, and I won't bore you by describing what I hear, but it's not at all your standard 4-4. It sounds innovative because it's not a drumming style that would prevail in pop and rock going forward, but it also sounds like perhaps a regional style that grew out of the Texas soil much how early reggae drumming totally reinvented how to play beats and takes a lot of upside-down thinking to master if one didn't grow up in Jamaica. So again, um, Mike wrote this tune and plays guitar on it. He'd been playing and writing for only about a year and a half at this point, and the electric guitar was an even newer instrument to him. His playing is simplistic but solid. Now, the producer in me would love to hear a Vox or Farfisa organ solo over the instrumental that ends the song to put a little icing over Mike's strumming. Hey, that gives me an idea. Why don't I reach out to my old pal and musician extraordinaire Ken Meary? Some of you listeners may have seen Ken multitasking in the B-52's touring band in the past few years. Or maybe with Pedro the Lion or Mark Mulcahy or the Mammals. Or, on a more regional scale, Ken's a guy that I've been playing music with in lots of bands since 1994, like Sourpuss, Aloha Steam Train, Gentle Hen, The Fawns, and my own solo project sitting next to Brian. He's also done some great work with the band King Radio, as well as his own solo projects, Ribbon Candy and Four Color Press. Anyway, hang on a sec. I'm going to ask Ken if I can send him How Can You Kiss Me, and if he could add a groovy organ solo to the end. 
Okay. I sent it. He's doing it now, and we'll send it back when he's done. Yeah, yeah. He sent it, and it sounds great. Now let me just mix an EQ so it sounds somewhat authentic. Okay, ready? Sure that wasn't Augie Myers? <laughs> that was so much fun. Thank you, Ken Murray. I look forward to more special guests and future episodes. Who might they be? I feel the need to oh so quickly play a part of the B-side of How Can You Kiss Me? Just a little love. Because, while not as cool and danceable as How Can You Kiss Me, it actually does contain more of what I earlier defined as folk rock or those characteristics. First, for the Dylan influence, we have simplistic harmonica between each of the verses. Then, for the Beatles influence, I'm guessing a Beatles influence, we have a great bridge. And the guitar jangles more than it strums, which is an essential folk rock trait. And uh, this, not to do with the folk rock, but once again, Bill Sleeper, man, with the inventive drumming. Very cool pattern. Dig. I hope someday soon I can buy things, but I hope that you don't wait for me to buy things. Take me as I am with a heart that's pure. Take me as I am, I'll be ever And yet, despite those characteristics and the fact that it's a pretty good song, uh, I wouldn't call Just a Little Love particularly forward-thinking or cutting-edge. In fact, it 
kind of sounds, if anything, like uh, Buddy Holly or Everly Brothers. Kind of a look back to the late 50s. But never fear. The forward-thinking, cutting-edge Mike Nesmith is just around the corner. What, dumbass me? Oh, and hey, you know how I said that there would be no episodes dedicated to any of Nesmith's uh, New Age projects? I never said anything about not using it as a bed. So yes, indeed. Uh, all that uh, ocean and birds and stuff like that that you, you might be able to hear underneath everything, that is from his uh, album The Ocean, which was the third part of a trilogy that began with the prison, then the garden, then the ocean. So I think this episode was unique to this series because it's the first, and so I wanted to set the stage and provide the backstory and context. But now we're up and running, and off we go. Next episode features an instant classic that started as a Michael Blessing folk number, and over the next decade assumed all sorts of different shapes and sizes. I've got a good personal story with it, too. It's also our first example of Mike's love of titles that are not part of the lyrics. And before I go, I invite you to email me with questions, comments, requests, etc. Stories at where's that sound coming from? That's all one word, no apostrophe. Where's that sound coming from? At gmail.com. Be nice. All right, see you next time.